Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon, I think, uh, up in on the hillsides of Mount Kenya in Kenya. Uh, we're joined by Carl Oman, who, uh, who's lived in, in Kenya, on Mount Kenya, I think you've said, for 40 years, but also... Uh, in and out of the Congo Basin for three decades. And Carl is a very well-known documentarian, wildlife photographer, conservationist who works uh, in writing, photography, and investigating uh, the illegal wildlife trade. Uh, so a very good afternoon to you on the, on the hillside of Mount Kenya. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be in touch. Well, today, well, the reason why we've asked you to come on the show, in part because you have been documenting for all these years uh, the illegal wildlife trade. And in the past 10 years, particularly uh, with the rise of China in Africa, there's been a tragic yet just unavoidable surge of illegal wildlife trafficking between China and Africa. Um, the list here is depressingly long, and, 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 and Carl just... Tell me if I'm, if I'm just getting even a part of it. We're talking about uh, shark populations, tigers, pangolins, elephants, tigers, chimpanzees, rhinos, gorillas. I mean, the list goes on and on of, of the impact that Chinese consumption of African wildlife is having on the populations. And so today, I guess we want to talk about, in, in particular, chimpanzees. And that is one that's, an, that's a wildlife category, an animal that has not really surfaced much in the in the public media and the public perception, uh, in terms of being the 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 passion that people have for things like rhino and uh, for for um, elephant, which in, and ivory and things like that. So, talk to us about the crisis that you've been uncovering uh, in the chimpanzee trade. Yeah, I have of course also worked on rhino and ivory, but uh, chimps uh, and great ape exports, live exports, is not something the public is generally aware of. It has not gotten that much attention as the products. I mean, the ivory rhino horn products, but it is an issue which should be looked into, which should be addressed. China has imported a large number of chimps and gorillas, essentially illegally. And uh, there is a new middle class uh, in China which wants to be entertained on weekends and during the week and go to zoos and safari parks, is willing to spend serious money on entering the park and then possibly to pay again to see a show. And many of these shows now feature chimpanzees, which were caught in the wild in Africa, where up to 10 adult animals had to be killed to secure one orphan. And that's uh, the issue which we have been trying to document and trying to expose for the last two or three years. And as I said, it's kind of an upstream struggle because it is not in the league of ivory and rhino horn as far as public perception. Um, Carl, can you give us an idea of the scale of the situation? Like how how many roughly, um, uh, you know, of these these chimpanzees are are traded in this way, and what is the effect on on chimpanzee populations in Africa? Okay, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work, as we discussed before, in the Congo Basin, and I was convinced still quite recently, two or three years ago, that most of the pressure on ape population, chimps and gorillas and bonobon, came from the bushmeat trade, and most of the orphans were a byproduct of the bushmeat trade. But once we heard about these imports of these chimps and gorillas and bonobons, but they didn't go to China, 
they went to Russia and Armenia, but the chimps and gorilla did go to China. Once we heard about that and looked into it, we came across dealers in Guinea and uh, West Africa, which made it clear that they now had specific capture teams out there specifically to supply the demand for life, orphan baby chimps. And the demand was largely driven by the zoo and safari park community in China. So this is how the situation has evolved. And as I said, you, if you want a live chimp baby, you probably kill five to ten adults to get them. And even then, they're shot with shotgun uh, cartridges, which have some 69 lead pellets in them. So most of the time, chimps get injured or uh, the babies get injured or killed as well not just the mother. So it is a pretty wasteful way to get their hands on chimps, but it's the whole scenario behind it as far as uh, what site is the International Convention on the Trade in Endangered Species is meant to do in these instances, what they're meant to do in terms of enforcement and the lack of enforcement which has been taking place in these particular cases. Well, let's talk a little bit about context here, and and I'd like you to kind of set the stage for us, because in the reporting that you've done, uh, you focus a lot on the Chinese, but the Chinese are by no means alone uh, in terms of being a destination for this trade. You talked to, you reported, there was some, some work that you've done focusing on the San Diego Zoo in California, for example. And so I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are in terms of where China stands in relation to other countries. Yeah, okay, so that the San Diego Sioux story did involve primates from the Congo, but uh, CITES too list the primates, which were already in captivity with dealers when some, some South African dealer actually discovered them, exported them to South Africa, and only from there were they sold to San Diego. So it was not that uh, San Diego Sioux placed an order with a dealer in Congo for a specific type of primate. But yes, you're correct. Uh, some of these uh, apes have gone to other destinations from basically the same source, that is Guinea or other countries in West Africa. And it's the, always the usual suspects, meaning uh, the Middle East is, uh, you know, is an important factor. There's lots of wealthy people who have private collections, essentially private zoos. They order whatever they feel like and some way they get it, irrespective of society's rules and the regulations. I've mentioned Armenia before. Armenia seems to be a transit point to get uh, those kind of primates and apes into Russia, uh, where you have a similar scenario of oligarchs, which are you know the sheikhs of that part of the world, which can afford private collection. So yes, there has been imports into other parts, as a mainly Middle East, mainly Russia, but not in the numbers which went to China since. 2007, between 2007 and 2013. Um, so, you know, it seems to me that logistically it's much more complicated thing to, to transport a baby chimp um, and to keep it alive on, on, on the way than to, for example, pack ivory into a crate and ship it. Um, is, am I right in assuming that there is a, a lot of, of collusion by African officialdom in order to, to, have, to do this trade or, or is it working in a different kind of way? No, the, the main restriction should be that, that uh, this, you know, the exporting country in Africa and the importing country, be it Armenia or China or whatever, 
are members of the CITES convention. All the apes are listed as CITES 1. Uh, I mean, the most endangered category can only tra be traded in very select circumstances. There has to be a non-detriment finding by the exporter and the importer showing that it will not affect any wild population. So in this case, all these apes were trafficked as C, uh, source code. The C source code on this site, this permit stands for captive-born, except that was a scam. There wasn't a single one captive-born, and each single offtake affected the wild population. So it totally contravened the site, this convention, every one of these transactions, and there's specific rules and regulation with CITES, what should be happening once such an illegal transaction takes place. As far as shipping them, I've talked to dealers in Guinea, we have interviewed them, we have been there, we have uh, had undercover guys talking to them. Uh, it's not very difficult to export the chimp. They mostly offer to travel with the animals. I mean, they cost probably about $15,000 an animal. So if a, a safari park in China orders two, that's $30,000. For another $3,000, the dealer will travel with them on the Ethiopian air flight or whatever other airlines they use. But a lot of them use the Ethiopian airlines and they will ensure that they get there. Most of the time, half is paid up front as a deposit. If the animal should arrive dead or whatever, then the other half doesn't get paid. So both sides have an interest to get the animals to destination alive. We have been told by a lot of dealers that now there has been some issues around uh, these, you know, these illegal exports under the C category. Uh, that they would prefer to export or have importers which would be willing to buy CITES two list the primates. These are the less uh, endangered ones we discussed before to uh, San Diego Zoo. These would be patas, monkeys, mangabees, and others, uh, which are you know easier or more. Uh, easy to transport, but more uh, also more legal on the societies uh, to ship and to sell and buy and to hide the chimps among them. That seemed, they said that's our preferred method. So the official exports were declared officially, that's where we have the figures from, and they were declared as sea captive born, which was totally wrong. There wasn't a single one sea captive born, but we do not know how many others were shipped illegally hidden among CITES-2 primates. We know of a lot of shipments of CITES-2 primates, but of course, since it's not listed in the trade statistic, what's hidden inside that crate among the listed species, we will never know how many chimps or gorillas might have been included in those shipments. Okay, well, let me, let me describe the world the way that I see it. And I'd like to get your reaction to it and do your, your thoughts on this. Okay. And, okay. You've talked a lot about CITES. Um, CITES, though, at the same time, you've also mentioned that it's often manipulated or disregarded. To me, it looks largely ineffective. Um, most countries don't seem to be paying attention to it. Cobus mentioned the fact that there's very little enforcement on the African side. Uh, we're only now seeing some stiff jail sentences coming down for wildlife trafficking, but that's really just happened in the past few months. There's no motivation whatsoever on the part of uh, Vietnam or China to really crack down on this. We hear rumors that they're going to uh, stiffen up their laws on ivory, and but at the same time, there's collusion between Chinese officials uh, and either on the customs side or at other levels of the Chinese government and the importation, the illegal importation of wildlife. 
um, rhino horn and ivory now are worth far more than narcotics and gold. So there's a financial incentive for everybody involved. Um, we've lost now, according to one report that came out earlier this year, 50% of the planet's wildlife has been destroyed in the, since 1970. Um, and we are now on a path of industrialization and urbanization that doesn't look like it's going to slow. And so we're in a situation where nobody is there to stand up for the animals in any meaningful way. And even, and this is what annoys me the most about this debate, is that people in the West will get very, very high and mighty about this. But at the same time, the United States is the second largest importer of illegal ivory. And yet the Washington Post newspaper came out with an article a month ago which said that the budget cutbacks in customs enforcement in the United States makes it so that it's easier than ever to import ivory into the United States. So this isn't simply a problem in China. It's also a problem in the West. So at the end of the day, it seems to me, depressingly so, that the animals are screwed. Yeah, I mean, I guess to a big extent you are correct. I mean, the CITES convention in some ways is about the only tool we have internationally to pinpoint the people in you know which have compliance problem be they the US or be they China and then deal with them because the CITES uh, article 8 provides for specific sanctions uh, in case of infractions of the convention and as I said ivory and rhino horn are products so kind of uh, harder to to decide what to do with in case of infractions they should also be shipped back to the countries of origin but it hardly ever happens with live animals, there is meant to be, according to Article 8, there is meant to be investigations and prosecutions of the dealers. There is meant to be a confiscation of the animal and there is meant to be a repatriation. So we know of, uh, you know, of probably 30, 40 chimps performing in specific zoos in China, earning big money, having been trapped. Uh, traffic commercially, which is totally legal under CITES for CITES one animal. You cannot export one for commercial purposes alone, but that's what has been happening. Under CITES, there should be an investigation. The dealers who imported them should be prosecuted. These animals should be confiscated. They should be uh, DNA tested. The countries of origin, be they Congo, Guinea or Cameroon or Nigeria, should be informed. We look, we seem to have ended up with some of your animals. Do you want them back or what do you want done with them? That's the rules and regulation and that's the only convention we got. But they don't follow and the rules say, in places like the Congo. No one follows the rules in I, the Congo. I agree, and we, we are just exposing that fact that they're not following the rules in the Congo, and we all know that is a fact, and Congress should have been suspended a long time ago from the CITES Convention for not following the rules. I believe we could contributed to a big extent to get Guinea suspended from the convention for these infractions, which I outlined, but try to get anybody uh, to suggest uh, that China should be sanctioned for their imports. Uh, you can go after Guinea, you can even go to some extent after Vietnam or whatever, but do not dare go after China. It's pretty much impossible. Um, Carl, what kind of reaction have your work gotten from China? Has, has, your, has your movies been shown in China and have, have, you, have you received any kind of reaction from them? Is that we, you know, there was a student organization in uh, in uh, Beijing which wanted to show my movie. They invited me for the showing as part of a press conference. 
uh, there were two days prior to the press conference, they were informed that the movie could not be shown. It was not factual. The movie had been done for ZDF, which is the biggest term, the biggest broadcaster in Europe. It's the German TV. Uh, they have all their editorial policy. We had to give everybody the right to respond. So we contacted the Ministry of Forestry in China over and over, asked for them, uh, asked for us to be able to ask questions and put certain issues and documents to them. They categorically refused. At the end, they gave us a statement in Bangkok, but no questions were allowed to be asked. But nevertheless, they said the, the movie was not factual. Therefore, showing it would represent uh, a national security issue and therefore it could not be shown. So this is the kind of, you know, problematic I'm discussing. If we cannot discuss these infractions openly, uh, we are looking now for an international scenario. And this is not just China. This is uh, the same happens in Egypt. Uh, we know of several other places with serious infraction of CITES where the Secretariat is not following its own rules, is not doing any, any enforcement. But uh, China seems to be the one with the most leverage and nobody at the, at the Secretariat of CITES or even the Standing Committee seems to be willing to stand up in this particular case against China, with China saying we have done absolutely nothing wrong and therefore there should be no discussion at all. That's the ultimate position they presented in Beijing and that's just wrong. Okay, so let's end the show on something of a positive note. Let's try because I don't want everybody to be completely depressed. Um, but what are, you, you know, a lot of people... They see the, the pictures, they, they, they follow what you're doing, and they just get thoroughly depressed thinking that there's nothing that they can do. Tell me, you know, is there anything that people in other parts of the world or anywhere in the world for that matter, including China, where the show is heard, um, can do that will have some positive, meaningful, actual contribution rather than just liking a Facebook page that, you know, save the, save the elephant, save the rhinos. That's meaningless. But what, what are some tangible things that you think you can recommend people do to, to help pr promote the cause? Look, it's, uh, it's, you know, people ask me that all the time. What can an individual do? And unfortunately, an individual has very little power. We would like to believe we have it, but even me with my films or whatever at the end of the day there's very little change I have affected or anybody in my shoes can affect and it's uh, you know the, the, there's a lot of forces against us is that I could go much deeper than that into the human population growth and the consumption levels and the materialistic outlook of societies in general and so on but that's not what you want to hear. So, you know, where are the solutions? Uh, people ask me, why are you doing what you're doing? And I said, look, the only thing left to do is to take away the excuse of I did not know mm -hmm. and take that excuse away from policymakers mostly because that the little old lady who is very upset with what I might be telling about what happens to Chimp, she has very little option, even if she picks up her phone and calls a member of parliament. If thousand people do that, maybe it makes a difference. But the policymakers, if we can get this on the radar, you know, carte blanche and uh, these programs where some policy with, uh, uh, some policymakers actually watch, that they say, okay, look, this is my domain. We should be able to do more on a policy level. Let's try to be more, you know, more political 
politically, I have more political will as far as the enforcement. If you don't enforce, then, you know, forget the wildlife. I mean, there's, it's going so fast now. If the world is not willing to control the demand, you know, where there is demand, there will be supply and it will go. Forget the pangolin, forget a lot of these creatures. They will be gone in the next 20, 30 years at this rate. And, you know, I can only see enforcement either at the consumer end or the producer end, which uh, will make a difference. Well, very well said. Uh, unfortunately, not quite the positive note that I was looking for to end the show. But nonetheless, uh, you know, if people Praise. do want that, say, hey, listen, you know, I am... Uh, you, you and I are, are like-minded souls on this, you know, and so, uh, but if people want to follow some of the work that you've done, uh, your photography, some of your documentaries, what's the best way that they can stay in touch? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not very good on social media in a sense that I have enough on my plate without spending daily on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, so I stay out of that also because I still do active investigative work. So I don't want to be too well known on too many levels. Uh, so I'm, you know, I have an email address, and I'm very good in responding to emails, and I'm happy to give out my. You can give out my email address, uh, and people can write to me personally and ask questions or want debates. I mean, after this, uh, after this meeting in Beijing, I got an email from somebody who says he had a lot of inside information, and I've been talking to the person ever since, uh, and have learned some interesting perspectives from the China, and so I'm very open to that, uh, but. As I said, I'm not a Twitter, I'm not a Facebook person. So the best to get to me is via email. I have a web page. I don't manage it myself. I have a friend in the U.S. who puts some news items up every now and then, but I'm not one of these social media guys. Well, no worries. I will I will promote you a little bit. Uh, Carl, K-A-R-L-A-M-M-A-N-N. Just do a search on Google. And a lot of the video, your videos that you're featured in will come up, and a lot of the work that you've done will actually come up as well. It's very meaningful. It's very interesting. It's at the same time extraordinarily depressing. Uh, and at the same time, we're, it's a topic that we're continuing to try to, to talk about in a way that goes beyond just the, the, the superficial kind of headlines that, we've, that most of the media covers. So, Carl, we're just so grateful you were able to join us today. Uh, and if people would like to follow, follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Cobus is over there at uh, Stadenesk, S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, over on Twitter. And, of course, if you'd like to follow this podcast, uh, just head over to iTunes, do a search for us at the China Africa Project. We'll be, get, be back again next time with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.